If you're new to Crosspoint, uh, again, just a special welcome. Thanks for being here. My name is Jamie, and it's my privilege to uh, serve you as one of the pastors. I would love the opportunity to get to connect with you after the service for a moment. Uh, it's also my privilege uh, to continue in this series with you all uh, called The Way of the King. We're looking at the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, all right, King Jesus. And Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 preaches what has historically been known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so we are in it this week, and next we'll conclude it, all right? So we're kind of into this last part of chapter 7 where Jesus is sort of landing the plane, so to speak, and beginning to talk about, like, okay, in summary, like, what is it that he's been communicating? What is it that he's been saying? And so I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 13 to 23. And so if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the tables back there. I'd encourage you to get up, grab one of those. You can find the passage today on page 901. And if you don't own a Bible, I want you to take that one one of those paperback ones home with you uh, just as a gift. Uh, it's important to be able to study God's word. And so right here, right now, even to have it open. Your other option, as always, too, is to get your phone out and go to cpwp.life. As you swipe over the second card, it'll say message notes. Uh, what is up on the screen this morning, the text that we're in is all listed there. There's space that you can actually type out notes, email them to yourself afterwards, just another resource. Because uh, we want to not just hear it one time, but we want to be able to come back to it. We want to soak in this, sort of marinate in it and ask Jesus, like, what do you have for us, particularly in this text this morning? So I'm going to go ahead and read this. And if you are able, would you go ahead and stand as I read God's word? Matthew chapter 7. Verses 13 to 23, Jesus says these words. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. So on this cold and dreary morning, uh, we just ended a text where Jesus basically makes this pronouncement. The people are saying, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says to them, like, away from me. I never knew you. I'm not in relationship with you. You're not part of my kingdom. You're not going to enjoy my presence. You, in fact, you've been a worker of lawlessness, all right? So welcome to church. Glad you're here, all right? Like, what are we to do with this? I mean, this is a hard word. I kind of wish it was like, all right, but yes, there's this turn here, and it's kind of this cheery thing, and the sun's going to come up, and the gym's going to get brighter, right? We're going to have this, this moment, and yet we have to see this, that God, Jesus, in his kindness toward us, gives us this passage. It's full of warnings. It's full of, there's some encouragement in it, certainly, but this is challenging, and part of the reason that we regularly journey through whole books of the Bible or whole sections of the scriptures is because it forces us, it forces me, all right, if I'm teaching on it, to teach on this. I don't get to skip these verses. It forces us as a community to wrestle with it because there's some difficult things in here. And we've seen that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But I want you to know this, that what this is 
asking us to consider is this, like, is it possible for one to sort of claim the name of Christ, to say you're a follower of him, but to not actually really be a disciple of Jesus? What it's asking us is this, is what does apprenticeship to Jesus look like? Now, apprenticeship may not be a term that we regularly throw around, but it is a really helpful image. That's what disciple is getting at. An apprentice is somebody that comes up under this master teacher, and it's like, literally, teach me, all right, to do what you do. And so us as Christians, if we claim that, if we say we're followers of Jesus, we are apprentices under King Jesus, and we're to follow him to learn what it looks like to live this way of Jesus, this way of the king. And what does apprenticeship actually look like? And so this passage is going to help us wrestle with it. There's a ton that we could tease out in this, but I want to put before you just a few things that, this morning that I think help us answer this question. And sometimes, though, there is this idea that to follow Jesus is like, okay, it's going to be hard and it's difficult. Yep, it's the, it's the hard way, which we're going to look at in these verses, and there's very few, and it's a life of drudgery, and it's kind of horrible, and just kind of like, just put in your time. Hopefully heaven will be better, but like, for right now, like, it's God robbing you of all joy. Your friends get to go enjoy their life. You're in the church. Welcome. Like, there can kind of be that mentality, but I love the words of Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy. He says this. He says, no one goes sadly, reluctantly into discipleship with Jesus. No one goes in bemoaning the cost. They understand the opportunity. And one of the things that has most obstructed the path of discipleship, or you could say apprenticeship to Jesus in our Christian culture today, is this idea that it will be a terribly difficult thing that will certainly ruin your life. Now, you may not have pronounced that this week, and I may not have, like, that Jesus is going to ruin my life. Or if you're wrestling with the truth claims of Christianity, you might sincerely have been wondering that. Like, is this going to ruin my life? And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. Like, part of the reason he gives this warning is that we wouldn't be confused about what apprenticeship to Jesus actually looks like. And he wants to invite us into this life that is life to the full, that it's flourishing, that you and I would become the men and women that we've been created to be as the image bearers of God. So we're going to look at three things th this morning. The first we're going to spend more of our time in because the text that we're in next week as we conclude has some overlap, certainly. But I want to look at these verses in 13 to 14. Jesus speaks of this gate or this path, these ways. There's different language that, that is used depending on the translation that you have. But the big idea, that if we're going to be an apprentice of Jesus, as he calls us and says, listen, you have to embrace what is referred to as this hard way, this challenging way, this difficult way. Not because it's not full of joy and life, but also there's this acknowledgement that, okay, there's something that's challenging about it. And what is it that's actually challenging? And so look with me again at verses 13 to 14. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. So you kind of picture this, right? There's that invitation. Really what it is, it's a command for all of us. That's where you are to enter. And then he describes in contrast, he says, for there's a wide gate. The gate is wide. And then that path or that way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. So you think about it just for a moment, the logic, right? He's just like, hey, there's a gate, there's a path, it's wide, it's easy, and it's got tons and tons of people on it, but guess what? It's a path that's leading towards death, devastation, destruction, ultimately where Jesus concludes the, in verse 23 when we looked at like this, you're not in the presence of God as you've been created to be. So he's like, there's that path, all right? But then he says in verse 14, all right, for the gate is narrow 
And the way is hard, though, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So there's this other gate, apparently, and it's narrow, and there's not tons of people going through this. Maybe you've pictured like a turnstile, like you're kind of getting on a subway or going into an amusement park or something, and you can't go like a whole crowd through that. You have to go one at a time, all right? So it's this narrow gate. There's this narrow way, but it actually opens up to life. But he's saying there are actually few on it. All right. Now, I don't think that's for us to speculate and be like, oh, there's only a, a few all right, um, that are going to get into heaven. No, it tells us that there's a ma- multitude that are going to be with King Jesus. But it is causing us to stop and ask ourselves, like, hey, what path are you on? Because here's the reality of the situation. Every single one of us, regardless of what you believe this morning, you and I, you are on a particular path. Like, nothing is neutral. What Jesus is laying out for us is this. You're either on a path to destruction or you're on a path that leads to life. And he wants us to consider these things because the path that leads to life, this apprenticeship to Jesus, actually is where true life, deep satisfaction is to be found. So think about it this way. Every single person here, every single person that has lived in the past, present, or will live in the future has been a disciple, has been an apprentice to some teacher, to some narrative, to some dominant storyline. And so you're either an apprentice to Jesus and it leads to life, or you're a disciple or you're an apprentice, you're on a path, all right, according to this narrative that, hey, you've got to earn, you've got to succeed, you've got to, you got to, you do you, like, just ask yourself for one, like, how's that actually working out? Is it leading to the life that you want? But we gotta do away with this notion that like, no, come on, like, I get that there's kind of extremists on either side. I'm just kinda, I'm more in the middle. It's nonsense. And God in his love for you, and his love for me, says, no, no, you're either on one of two paths. You're on a path. And so just to ask for a moment, all right, and there's tons of things I think we could dive into here, but just for sake of time, just a couple things. Like, what is this wide, what is this easy way all about? Because apparently there's lots and lots of people that are heading in this particular direction. I would say ultimately, it's the story that's been playing out since the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, where everything is perfect and harmonious leading up to it in Genesis 1 and 2. And then there's a deceiver that comes on the scene and says to Adam and Eve, listen, God is holding out on you. God does not have your best interest in mind. You need to become like God. You need to be, you know, like this expressive individualism. Like you are being restricted by the God of the universe. You got to be free from those shackles and those restraints. And there's this lie that's put out there as like this amazing invitation, but ultimately it's going to lead to destruction where they say, oh yeah, God hasn't been good to me. God hasn't been kind to me. God is somehow holding out on me. And so you, from Genesis 3, we have masses and masses, amounts of people, all right? Apart from the grace of God, all of us would be on this path that are just thinking, I want to do what I want to do. I want to be God. I want to be king. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whoever I want to do it. And so the interesting thing in this is we'll look at this a little bit more closely next week, but just kind of a sneak peek into that as we review back over the Sermon on the Mount The fascinating thing is what Jesus is speaking to is this wide path, this easy way, so to speak, where there's lots of people on it. They're both very, on that path, you'll find very irreligious people. People that are like, I want to do what I want to do. I don't care about the Bible, the commandments. The only thing I care about are the commandments is just checking off how many of them I can break, right? Like that's just what they're interested in doing. And yet, on that same path, traveling together, although they would think they're in a different group, are highly religious people thinking, if I just change the external, if I just modify my behavior enough, surely God will love me, he'll accept me, I have to be on the right path. 
And that's some of the terrifying words we read here at, at the end. We'll get to those in a moment, right? Where Jesus is like, hey, I, I know you were doing ministry. I know you were prophesying. I know you were healing. I know you were doing all these things, but I actually never knew you. It's like, whoa, whoa. And so there are, apparently there are lots and lots of people on this path. Some are religious. Some are irreligious. But both groups are trying to be their own Lord, their own Savior. They're trying to just, in, in essence, be ultimate over their life. And the scary thing in this, and here's what I think we have to consider, all right, not just for the world that's out there, but for us here as well, because Jesus is asking us to consider in a good, healthy way, not, not in this, like, I hope all of us doubt our salvation today. If you walked in as a Christian, my job is not to convince you, nope, you're actually, you're not, all right? Um, and so at the same time, we do need to consider these matters and ask, how am I doing in my apprenticeship to Jesus? Am I actually growing in that way? Do I have maybe a false confidence about where I actually stand. And so on this path, this wide and easy way, I would say there are many people on that. And maybe a way to frame this is they are curious. They're interested in Jesus. They might even read some books about Jesus. They might listen to a podcast about Jesus. They might show up at church. They might be very, very committed to church. But there's a difference between curiosity and commitment. There are many, many people that are curious about Jesus but aren't interested in submitting their life to Jesus. Apart from the grace of God, this is where I would be, all right? I'd be curious about Jesus. I think I'd want to know. It's like he's an influential teacher, all of those sorts of things, all right? He seems to have had an impact on just culture at large. Like, we can acknowledge that. But just acknowledging that or even growing in a lot of just your doctrinal understanding doesn't mean that you're a follower of Jesus. There's actually involved here is a commitment. So the wide way, the easy way is just be curious about it, but don't ever submit your life to Jesus. Don't actually ever see him as Lord. Made me think that this week in studying and preparing for this, one of the scenes that, that came to mind, perhaps you're familiar with the Bible, you may remember this, is it's in the, the moments leading up to the death of Jesus. Jesus has been brought in between, for like the Jewish religious leaders, and he goes before Herod. Eventually he ends up kind of in the, you know, uh, basically in the, the presence and the household of Pontius Pilate, all right, who's the Roman ruler in that time and in that particular place. And they're having this dialogue and what is fascinating is I think as you look at the text here, and I'll put it up on the screen in a moment, in John 18, I would say Pilate is very curious about Jesus. And yet sometimes we just stay in the realm of curious. We stay in the realm of philosophical. Now listen, if you've got philosophical doubts and questions, I think this passage brings up a lot of those things. Like how can Jesus be the only way? All of that. We'll get to some of that in a moment. Those are great questions. You should bring those questions. We as the church should not be afraid of those questions. But sometimes they can be a bit of a cover-up, though, for what we actually might know deep in our being is true and right and good and beautiful, and yet there's this unwillingness to submit. Look what Pilate says. Pilate said to him, so you're a king, right? So this is what we've been looking at in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the king who's reclaiming his world. He's forming a people, all right? Pilate said to him, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, well, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth, meaning the truth that Jesus actually is king, listens to my voice. Now, do you notice what Pilate does here in this moment? I think it's starting to get uncomfortable. I think there's this moment here where he's like, oh, if this man actually is king, then it's going to totally disrupt who he is in the world because he liked to view himself as what? I mean, he was a powerful man. There wasn't anybody really ultimately in that area that had to submit to him. 
or that he had to submit to, I should say. Everybody submitted to him. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm letting you know that I actually am the king. And so it goes from this curiosity, but when it comes to a moment of recognizing and acknowledging if Jesus really is who he says he is, if he's king, then, he, then he's the one in charge, not Pilate, not you, not me. And so do you notice what Pilate said to him? What does he say? Pilate said to him, what is truth? I think it's a diversion tactic at this point. Not because that question is invalid. That's a significant question. Like, what is truth? How do we know truth? All right? I mean, those are huge, massive, important things. We'd love to dialogue about those things. But I think in this moment, he's running up against, all right, here is the one who has all authority and all power, and I'm supposed to submit to him, but I don't want to give it up. Like, I want to be on the throne. And so Pilate goes philosophical for a moment. Rather than submitting, he's like, well, what is truth? Can we talk about that? And so what Jesus is laying out for us here is saying, I think there are lots and lots of people, lots of us perhaps, right, at times, like we're on this path and we're curious, but we're not really committed to following the way of Jesus. Soren Kierkegaard spoke of this. He said this, people try to persuade us that the objections against, against Christianity spring from doubt. Now, that is true to a certain extent, but look where he goes here. The objections against Christianity actually says spring from insubordination, the dislike of obedience, rebellion against all authority. And as a result, people have hitherto been beating the air in the struggle against objections because they have fought intellectually with doubt instead of fighting morally with rebellion. So let me ask you this. If you're somebody that's curious about Jesus, what's keeping you from following him, being an apprentice to Jesus? It might be your doubts, and there's some things you've got to work through, and that's yes and amen to that. But there's also something at the core of our being ever since Genesis 3, like Pilate is experiencing in that moment. Like, I don't want to submit. It's insubordination. I don't want to submit to Jesus as king. I kind of want to be king myself. And then there's some of us that if you've been, man, like you've been reading all the apologetic books, you've been listening to the right podcasts, reading the right blogs, you read this article and your friend that's got all these doubts, like, oh, I'm going to get them this time, right? Like, and so you got this stuff all loaded up and it doesn't ever seem to stick or make any sort of difference, all right? Not that we're anti any of those things, but maybe you've run up against this sort of the beating the air. What he's talking about here is that you and I are trying to solve something intellectually, trying to fight against the doubts that somebody has, all right? When fundamentally there's this rebellion that says, I don't care, who Jesus is, what he actually says, I want to be Lord over my own life. There's a rebellion. That's the core problem for humanity. And the wide path, the easy path, is just saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And Jesus says, okay, you can do that, but I want you to know in love. I love you. I care for you. There's another way. You need to see that this leads to destruction. So even as a church, as we think about it, not in a judgmental kind of, kind of way as we looked at that, this condemning thing, but in a right, godly sort of discernment to see there are lots and lots of people that are on a wide path, and our calling as a Christian is to say, listen, Jesus has rescued me. Jesus has put me on a, on a new path. I'm not perfect. I don't have this all figured out. I still got my own doubts. I still have my own questions. But I'm learning what it looks like to be an apprentice of Jesus to submit my life to him. And so what is the narrow in this sort of hard way all about? And again, there's a lot of things that we could talk about in this. But I think one way to summarize this and one thing that is emphasized here is on the one hand, there's a belief, so you could say doctrinally. Like there's claims that Jesus makes about who he is, what he came to do. But then flowing out of that, 
as you begin to understand, as you confess Jesus as Lord, as you say, Lord, I want to submit to you, it does lead to a life of devotion. We're not saved by our works. There's nothing, there's no merit in that. There isn't anything that God looks at and says, oh, you've been awesome. I guess I'm going to bring you over on my team. No, no. Like we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The whole story is God in his grace giving us the righteousness of Jesus. But once that happens, part of the way we have a confidence that we are actually an apprentice to Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is we're seeing our affections grow for him. We're seeing a devotion. There's this working out of our salvation. It's our justification, like you're right with God, leads to what the scriptures speak of as this sanctification, this growing in holiness, being molded and shaped more like the image of Jesus. So both of those things. I think it's hard, it's difficult. I mean, it's hard culturally to even just talk about this. I mean, look at Jesus' words in John 14, 6, all right? Can we acknowledge there's a tension in this? There's a difficulty of this? There's a narrowness? There's people that will say you're narrow-minded and bigoted and all these sort of things where Jesus said to him, them, right, said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's like, well, if we did a word study of no one, what does that actually mean? It actually means no one, okay? Like, like no one gets the, the Father. No one gets the presence of God. No one actually gets to be part of Jesus' kingdom, right? No one has that relationship with the Father, that restoration, redemption, all of that, except through Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection. And so this is, on the one hand, it is very exclusive. And so part of the hardness of this, I think, is it's always been difficult to say that. And we feel that here, don't we? In our time, in our place. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, like you have conversations with, with people, all right? Neighbors, family members, friends. Maybe you're, you know, you're like, man, the holidays are rolling around and somebody's going to ask you about your faith again. And they're going to think you are so closed-minded and so intolerant and all of those things. And you're like, Jesus, you're like, you follow him, all right? Like don't all paths lead to the, the same place ultimately, right? Like so Jesus is making a very, very exclusive claim. And yet, as we should see, and as we do see, it's also the most inclusive ever. Because he says, are you messed up? Do you recognize as Jesus started out the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit? He's saying, do you recognize your brokenness? Do you recognize that you're not perfect? Do you recognize that there's this rebellion? Do you recognize that there's something about you that you want to be Lord over your own life? Have you come to kind of the end of yourself? Like when you're in that spot, he, he welcomes so yes, it's exclusive, but it's exclusive out of love because he's like, there's actually no other way. And so there's doctrine that's here. Part of being a disciple, an apprentice to Jesus, that we at the end wouldn't be told like, away from me, I never knew you, is, is believing that Jesus is who he says he is. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Truth is not just an abstract concept. Truth took on flesh in blood. And here you have Jesus as the truth who traveled away. And what was the way? It was the way of the cross. It was a punishment. It was a death that you deserve and I deserve. And yet Jesus willingly went in our place so that what? So that we might actually experience life, that we might be on a new path. And so there's this doctrine, and it does matter. But at the end of the day, there are plenty of people that can spout off right and good theology, but it doesn't mean it's affecting and transforming their life. I shared this quote a few weeks ago in this series, but I think it's worthwhile to come back to as we talk about devotion. Again, in The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, he says, here's the calling then. 
is to ask ourselves, like, hey, how would Jesus be living my life? He says this, I am learning them. This is what apprenticeship to Jesus looks like. I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, all right? We're not trying to live Jesus's life. It's like, no, you're called to live your life, all right? But how would Jesus actually do it? So I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I'm learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. So let's just talk very practically for a moment, all right? Sometimes there's this crazy notion that can kind of creep in that, all right, our only opportunity to really be an apprentice to Jesus is when we're doing sort of churchy things. When we're doing things that are sort of sanctioned by the church as part of a church program or it's gathering, I'm not anti any of those things, right? But at the end of the day, it is much, much bigger. So just think about some of the roles that you have. Have you asked yourself, how would Jesus do my job, all right? So think about it. For many of you in this room, all right, maybe, you know, you work full-time, part-time, maybe you're a full-time student, all right, there's a lot of different, different roles. You're a parent, all right, whatever it happens to be, you're in relationship with other people, like, you have all these various roles. So let's say tomorrow morning, you know, you, as your plan is, you head off to work, taking on the roles, responsibilities, the things that you have, the things that are part of your day, the things that you know are on your schedule, things you aren't aware of that are going to be on your schedule come tomorrow, right? All of these things. What if you and I asked ourselves throughout the day, hey, how would Jesus handle this situation? I mean, get very practical with it. This is what apprenticeship to Jesus looks like. Not just when you're gathered here at church. It's living this out in a life of devotion because you understand what he did for you. And you're like, okay, I just got that email. How would Jesus respond? How would Jesus reply in this email? How would Jesus if you were me, go and talk to this coworker. How would Jesus handle this sales opportunity? How would Jesus handle stress? How would Jesus parent my children, right? Like, how would he enter in? What kind of conversation? How would he seek to love this friend? How would he seek to love, the, you think about if you're married, a spouse, like all of these things. This is what apprenticeship to Jesus looks like. Jesus is calling us to say, ask those things. How would Jesus actually do it if he was living your life? Because all of it matters. How would Jesus compete? How would Jesus use the, even just the recreational opportunities you had? Like, how would he view all those things? How would he do it if, if, you know, if you were just doing it like Jesus did? That's the call. And we're not going to get it perfect. We're going to mess up. We're going to fail. We've got to keep going back to the, the grace of God, knowing that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He came to rescue me. I thank him for that. Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for resurrecting. Thank you that you're coming back, that you're going to set everything right. But our apprenticeship is not just off in the future. It's like it starts now. Like you're in this eternal life now. And so that's the calling. Now, as I've made reference to, right, there can be this tension that we feel as we're looking at this, all right, and some of you are watching, you probably maybe dialed into the clock, right, and you're like, hey, we're only in the first two verses, we're doing more time on this, just breathe, okay, as far as you know, okay, but isn't the narrow way sort of narrow-minded? Now, again, those are really valid questions, and we don't have time to do a deep dive in that, but if you got those questions, I, I hope you'll bring them. Maybe there's things that run through your mind, like, hey, I, I believe Jesus is a great teacher, I'm glad you're curious about Jesus, but if he is such a great teacher, then you either have to follow what he said, or as Lewis and others talked about, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And if he's Lord, you got to submit to him. That's where you actually find life. Or maybe there's this thought of like, you know what, like, hey, I can't get into all this doctrine. I know you say doctrine, devotion. it's just about how you live your life. Doctrine does not matter. 
except in making that statement, you've just made your own little doctrinal statement. So you got your own little systematic theology written by you, all right? Just acknowledge that. Like the same, if you're asking people to play by these rules, sort of like, well, this doesn't matter. Like you're being inconsistent in that moment. You're making a doctrinal statement. So maybe that will lead sometimes to this, you know, you've heard numerous maybe versions of this, and they're not knocking the question. It, it's hard to wrestle through this. But sometimes there can be this view of like, no, you guys are narrow-minded. It's many paths up the mountain, all right? You can travel and all the different paths, all the different religions, all the different worldviews, all the different perspectives are ultimately going to be there. Okay, the only way that you could possibly know that that actually is true is if you can zoom out, hover over the whole mountain and actually see all the paths coming up, all the various sides. Like you have the objective view in order to make that declaration. Like, just realize that that's an exclusive claim. And so the Christian doesn't apologize for making an exclusive claim. It's like Jesus made exclusive claims. But here's the difference. Every other path up the mountain, so to speak, is about, like, what you do in Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not it. The reason this is the true way, the reason this is the way to get into the presence of God is because we can't do it. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, and notice the language here, all who labor and are heavy laden. Are you beat down? Are you broken? Are you poor in spirit? Are you messed up? Are you like, man, I can't even get out of my own way. Things are so messed up, all right? Jesus says, I'll give you rest. And he's not talking about a nap, although those are nice too. He's talking about a deep rest in the gospel that you don't have anything to prove anymore. You're not trying to make it up a mountain, all right? Jesus is the one who climbed the mountain, went to the top of that hill, was nailed to a cross, died for you, and rose again. Like, that's the good news. And he says, so I'll give you rest and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And so, yes, we learn, and yes, we are apprentices to Jesus, but he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, and it's this image of two animals, all right, that are kind of yoked together doing this work. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so, yes, there's work to do, but it flows out of the now easy burden because Jesus bore the ultimate burden, our sin, our rebellion, everything that you and I deserve, he took upon himself. John 8, 31 to 32 says this, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's not this popular cultural notion of like, um, like you've got your truth, all right, you do your truth, kind of thing. No, 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 the truth, the abiding in the word is the glorious word of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, it's exclusive, but it's radically inclusive because it's all are welcome. The only qualification to get into the kingdom of God, all right, it's not, your, it's not this meritorious good work thing or like tipping the scales. It's not any of that because we can't do it. It's all about Jesus and trusting in him. And I, I bring my brokenness. That, that's what I have to offer. When you recognize that, there's this invitation. A little over 100 years ago, um, in western North Carolina, maybe you've been to the, this spot before, there's a place that's come to be known as the Linville Caverns. Um, and this is... Um, it's kind of a beautiful spot, that, that part, of the, part of the country, but there's this interesting story that, that's told um, about this. I learned this in the la last couple weeks, all right, that there is this stream that kind of flows, all right, um, into uh, this particular cavern, and for years and years and years, people didn't know it was there, and there was these two young boys, all right, teenage boys that, that were fishing one day, and they saw this stream, and they, they followed it, all right, and they tell you this apparently on the, this tour, if you ever go to the, the caverns there, and they followed it, all right? They had their little, like, kind of uh, uh, 
lamp, basically. It was an actual lit, not a, not a flashlight. that They had lit that they took deep into the cavern, into, into the cave. Um, and one of them tripped and fell, and the light went out. Now, if you've ever done any caving, all right, it's fun, kind of, right? It's like terrifying. I mean, it is a blackness, a darkness. Like, I've been in one before, another part of, in, like, in Tennessee, and they, they had us turn off our flashlights and headlights, and you're like, you can't see a hand in front of your face. It's just sheer and utter terror and darkness. I was in there with like 30 middle schoolers. There's a whole other level of terror and darkness. But anyway, so here's this, this reality. There's two boys. They got no light, and for two days, they struggled to make their way out of there, and then one of them realized, you know what? There was, we remember the, the water was flowing in a particular direction, flowing into the cave. If we can find the water and go the opposite way, maybe we can make our way out. And that's what they did. And so crawling, they're scraped, they're like, you know, I mean, they're, they're kind of beat up, they're dehydrated, all of this, but they were able to find the stream, they were able to find the path, and they were able to follow it. And the language here that Jesus uses, some translations will say, like, the straight and narrow, but it's not straight in the way you think of, like, S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, like this straight. It's straight, like in straitjacket. And the, the idea here is like, it, it's this language that it's compressing, it's closing in on you. And many people feel that way about Jesus' claims. And yet, the beautiful good news of the gospel is this. If you submit to that, if you're sort of bound by that, it actually leads, not from this constriction, but to this ultimate spaciousness. The boys in this cave, all right, you could say, like, they're on the wide path. They're just having fun. They're doing what, what they're doing. But it leads to more and more darkness. They're free to go where they wanted. There's only one way out. They had to find the one path. They had to do that. On the one hand, you could say that was restrictive. But I don't think they viewed it as restrictive, did they? They viewed it as, like, we have found the source to rescue and to freedom. And what was restrictive, this straight, opened up into true life. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. And so when he talks about this, look with me at 15 to 20. He says, all right, there is a hard way, and it's going to feel restrictive, but it actually opens up to the most spaciousness that you could possibly ever imagine. Because if you think about it, the reality is everything that you pursue thinking this will provide spaciousness, this will, this will enhance my life, this will expand, this my kingdom I'll continue to build, just ask yourself, like, how's that been going? Like, it feels new and exciting and fresh for a moment, but eventually it turns on you. So that career you thought would be amazing, eventually it's just a job. It's not a source of identity. If you make it a source of identity, it will turn on you, it will devour you, it'll spit you out, it'll destroy you. Relationship, you do that, thinking, this will save me, this will rescue me, all right? You find that, like, you can celebrate that relationship, you can enjoy that, cultivate that, but if it's ultimately where you're finding your identity, it'll turn on you, devour you, destroy you. It be, seems spacious at first, but it begins to be more and more restrictive anytime we find our life and try and find our life in anything but Jesus. And the Jesus way, the apprenticeship to Jesus, it feels small and restrictive and it opens up into the life you and I were created to live. And so Jesus then says, hey, you got to get with the right teaching. You got to be around, like there's this dominant narrative all the time that says, you go create your own truth, you do you. And so he says, no, 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 like that needs, you need to be aware. So beware, he says, of false prophets, verse 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. The healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Like there's this judgment imagery again. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So Jesus first starts out and he's like wolf imagery, right? There's these wolves and they've got sheep's clothing. They're there to trick and to deceive. So I just need to ask you for more, like think through this. What, where are you going to for teaching? All right, and I'm not just talking about here on a, on a Sunday morning, but for one, in all areas of life. Like there's a call to use discernment because there are lots and lots of things done in the name of Jesus and Christianity that are simply garbage. Because at the end of the day, it still puts you at the center, that you're awesome, that you're to make a way, a name for yourself, all of that stuff. A false teacher is anyone that, for one, doesn't speak of the exclusivity of Jesus, doesn't speak of the reality of heaven and hell and judgment and all that. Like there's lots and lots of false teachers that won't talk about those things. At the same time, a false teacher, you might know that they're a false teacher. They're not talking about the inclusivity of Jesus, meaning like they, they're like, oh, but he can't possibly rescue that person or save that person. They're, they're too messed up. No, no, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, all who understand their brokenness. But Jesus says, listen, you've got to pay attention. And then there's also a call not just to look out there and be like, oh, I wonder who if, if this person's a, a false teacher is if you're on like this heresy hunt, all right? All of us have some measure of influence. All of us are called to be disciples who make disciples. Like, what's the emphasis in your life? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you talking about what is true and good and beautiful? Where are you putting your emphasis? Are you talking about the exclusivity of Jesus in a way just to, to win an argument? Or do you want to see people become devoted to Jesus, to be apprentices to Jesus? Like we have to ask ourselves this difficult question, like, because Jesus says, hey, at the end of the day, like, just give it time. Like, you're going to know them by their fruits. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. That there's this inward life. Like, you know this, don't you? Sometimes like, you get around somebody and you know they're not perfect, but they, there's something about their character it's not so much about their gifting, but it's about the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, like all of those things that you see manifested in their life. That's apprenticeship to Jesus that's being worked out. And so there's a call to pay attention. Jesus is saying, if you're going to be an apprentice to me, like apprentices get themselves aligned with the teacher. And ultimately, it's about getting aligned with Jesus, to follow Jesus. He's the rabbi. He's the teacher. He's the one. And so ask yourself, we have limited time, don't we? There are so many resources out there. Not everything you find on Google is true, just public tip there, right? Like all of these, these things, like there's so many resources. Are you finding the things that stir your affections for Jesus that are talking about right and pure and good, true doctrine and leading to a life of devotion to him? That's what we have to pay attention to. That's the calling here. And then Jesus concludes with verses 21 to 23, with what are, first glance, are some terrifying words, there's some sobering words. Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, like there's this emphasis even, these people are crying out. He says, we'll enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the will of the Father? The will of the Father is that you would know and worship God, that you would know and worship Jesus as God's own son, that you would understand what he's done for you. Jesus is talked in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's been preaching here is the love of God and the love of other people. And so the will of my Father is to do that. 
So he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Like, how can he say workers of lawlessness if they're doing these things? Because what is taking place here is it's a group of people that have not understood what eternal life actually is. John 17, verse 3 says this. Jesus lays it out very clearly. This is eternal life that they know you, and it's not just intellectual information. This is know in a relational, it's intimate, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that eternal life starts now. And so what you have here is a group of people that have not been transformed from the inside and then leading out. They've been modifying on the outside, hoping that that would be enough. Saying the right things, Lord, Lord, attending the church services, all right, being involved. I mean, he's describing people that are very involved in ministry. This is not a group of people like, away from me, I never knew you. You never showed up at church. You never went to a group. You never served. You never gave. You never loved the, you're like, he's like, that's not who he's talking to. It's a group of people that are engaged in all of that. But he says it's workers of lawlessness. Why? Because at the end of the day, it wasn't the overflow of a life that's been transformed internally and then leading. It works on the outside, thinking somehow that will earn the favor of God. And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. It's a terrifying thing. The reward at the end. I know we have questions. I've got the same things I wonder. Like, what's heaven going to be like? New heavens, new earth, all the specifics, all that. Will I be able to sing? Will my knees be restored so I can play basketball again? Like, oh, there's all kinds of fascinating questions, right? But at the end of the day, here's what you get. You get God. You get the presence of God. You get to be in his presence as you were originally created to be. So that's what we want. But it starts with the internal being changed. What Jesus has been contrasting, and we'll dive into this more next week, it's not a group of people that, some that are doing religious things and others that aren't. It's groups of people that seemingly are doing all the right things, but some are doing it for the right motivation to honor God, to worship God in response to what God has done for them. And others are doing it. They're praying, they're fasting, they're giving, thinking that they will earn. That is a treadmill. That is the wrong path. It's the wide path. It's the easy path. And it leads to destruction. And Jesus loves you too much. And he loves your friends too much and your neighbors too much and your family members, all of these things to not warn us about this and say it starts from the inside out so let me close with this first peter 20 first peter chapter 2 22 to 25 says this he committed no sin let's ask the spirit even right now as these words are read like stir our affections for jesus bring transformation from the inside and it would flow out he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree this is what christ has done for us that we might then what die to sin and live to righteousness Jesus did this so that we now can live in response to his grace. By his wounds, you have been healed. Listen, by his wounds, not by your righteousness, not by your acts, not by your giving, not by your serving, not by your church attendance, none of that. By Jesus' wounds, by his death, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. You're in the presence of the good shepherd. You're in the presence of the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That Jesus has done this for us. Apprenticeship to Jesus starts with recognizing, Lord, you, you are who you say that you are. 
and I follow you, and I love you, and I serve you, and I want to be transformed by you, but I need your help. I cannot do this on my own. And so as we go to a time of prayer, I want to encourage you in these things. Recognize your dependence. An act of dependence is praying. Pray this morning. Maybe you need to show your dependence for the first time and cry out to God and ask him to save you and to rescue you. The life of an apprentice to Jesus is one of constant dependence. We also need a community. And there's going to be members of our prayer team in the back corner. Maybe seek one of them out and go and ask them to, to pray with you and to pray for you. This is what dependence looks like. And then dwell. Spend time with Jesus. Starting right now, dwell. You get to talk with him, commune with him, cry out to him. You can't be an apprentice of somebody without spending time with them. And then decide. Commit. Think through, like, how am I going to grow in my apprenticeship to Jesus this week? Not to earn anything, but in glad response to what he has done, how he set you free, that you're abiding in his word. So let me pray these things for us, and we're going to continue in our service here in just a moment. But take some time before you go get kids or anything, just right now to quiet your hearts, and let's pray, and we'll continue in our service in a moment. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us. Thank you for the hard, difficult, sobering words that you gave us here in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7 in particular. Holy Spirit, we need your help to bring that challenge, that disruption uh, that, that we need that would lead us towards repentance, confession, that dependence. So we trust you in that, but we also, Spirit, we need you to apply a gospel comfort to remind us of who we are in Jesus. And that we might live from the inside out, that it might flow out of us, that we would die to this, this old way, this old path. We thought it was up to us. How foolish, it's darkened, leads to destruction. Jesus, thank you that you've rescued us. God, I pray for any here in this room that haven't experienced that rescue. I pray that today would be the day that they move from death to life, that they go from the, the easy path to this, what is seemingly a hard path, but is the one where life is actually to be found. May we all grow in our apprenticeship to you, Jesus. So empower us, strengthen us, and God, I pray that it would be done for your glory and our great joy. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.